And hello, you're listening to The Green Majority here. I am your host, Darren Kaster, and I'm sitting in the studio as usual with Stefan Hostetter. How are you doing, Stefan? I'm doing quite well. How are you doing? You had a week off in the burbs of Boston, I guess. Yes, the Boston burbs. <laughs> Good on Arlington. I can't do a Boston accent, but... Yeah, I don't, I don't even know if I would... Uh, I, I don't even know if I would recognize it if you had one. Apparently the key is the A and the R, like smart. Yes, they, they, the Boston Celtics right now have a great player because his last name is Smart, and so every time anyone from Boston says his name, it's hilarious. <laughs> so I'm going to throw to you just for a minute because we're uh, we're we're due. We have two things today. One of them is a uh, phone call live from Peru, actually at COP20. We're going to be speaking to Brenda Owens, who's there with the Canadian Youth Delegation. Um, and uh, we're obviously, as any time we do an international call, there's always fun. So we're, we're going to sort that out. That'll take me a second. So uh, uh, And then after that, we also have um, myth or science about you are what you eat. We have a, a CBC documentary that our friend over at the CBC sent us. We'll be speaking to um, the director for, or the, the main host from that film, actually, as well. Uh, but while we just sort out this initial uh, phone call issue, live radio, live happening radio. live. Live. Uh, if you want to just, we had some uh, pretty tremendous success with a couple of videos on our YouTube page. Uh, Vancouver Observer picked up. Uh, well, promoted both, but really picked up and, and gave us sort of an op-ed uh, thing. I don't know if you even saw it, but I added a little write-up to go with yeah, that so. uh, and been promoting it. So maybe if you want to just for a minute, if you want to just tell folks what it was we were doing and, and sort of the response and, for and sure. just talk about that for a minute. Yeah, for sure. So the uh, the one that you're referencing uh, was a response to Kinder Morgan's, uh, the president of Kinder Morgan Canada. Uh, and he, and basically he created a video, uh, which was about a minute long. Uh, that definitely was entirely. It was it was interesting because it was really what he was all talking about was trying to sort of accept that the Burnaby Mountain protests had sort of succeeded now, and he didn't really know how to go move forward. Uh, and so it was a one minute long video that he that that Kinder Morgan released themselves. Uh, I believe it was called "Let's Keep Talking," which I think is a wonderful phrase, um, especially given the fact that you're sort of you're sort of you're sitting here seeing a bunch of people say "Let's keep talking." Uh, and then they watch the video, and his entire video, that's what we picked up on. His entire video was really just what he was saying was, yes, let's keep talking as long as it ends with the pipeline being built to Burnaby Mountain. That yeah. was really what he was saying, you know, he, without, without, without ever finishing that sentence. He kept saying, let's keep talking, and then sort of slowly did not say the second half of that sentence. <laughs> uh, and so we went, uh, we, we had a fun little Wednesday morning uh, yeah. throwing together a video. Like basically, we called it an annotated version of mm -hmm. this talk, which basically was, we didn't do any, we didn't actually shoot any new footage. We just took what he had said and then annotated it. Uh, such as, you know, letting know that what t by talk he means, I don't know, maybe, maybe the lawsuits that they brought or the injunction to remove the protesters. Um, and when the and when the when he comes up with a favorite your edition was the false dichotomy of when we asked you guys what we should do you wanted us to put this pipeline through Burnaby Mountain and not through your streets as completely ignoring the third option of maybe you know not building the pipeline at all which I'm pretty sure is what the people in Burnaby would prefer uh, and then and then so that's so that sort of carried on to that's the sort of the whole tone of the video I I don't want to I'm not going to give you word for word because you should go watch it it's up on a YouTube channel right now. Yeah, uh, I, th I think the best thing though is just that I had a, the the most important thing of all of right. this, Stefan, is that I had a tremendous amount of fun doing that with you. Yes, that was a lot of fun. <laughs> that was an excellent amount of fun. Um, and and it's yeah, it's it's uh, so it's 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 done pretty well. So we're pretty happy about that. And then I guess the other video that we that which I was actually you did you did all of it. Yeah. Uh, which was last week for the solidarity again with Burnaby. The Burnaby Mountain is really is really uh, is really what we're all about. This yeah. This week. And so and I mean the the key factor there too. I mean when we're going out to an event like that, it's. Um, it, it is a little bit of a gray area because, you know, like in 
in spirit, we are wanting to promote issues where we don't feel that um, citizens have a voice and, and, and we want to give them a voice. Um, and so that's sort of the context under which we do that sort of thing. But, you know, if you were to also come and ask our opinion about stuff, mm-hmm. we have many opinions and, and they do at times overlap and they and at other times they don't overlap. And I think sort of what's really important here was that is to just sort of put a put a fine point underline under the fact that um, regardless of how you feel about um, anybody's per, uh, personal perspective on this issue and, and, and to draw a difference between, you know, saying that you do, whether or not you are in favor of exactly how things went down in Burnaby v- uh, or not doesn't also directly one-to-one translate with how you feel about the issue overall, right? And I think what's really, what's really been the shame here, uh, I think, watching all of the social media, although I, you know, I, I should know better at this point than to, <laughs> than to worry about YouTube comments. Don't read the comments. No, I know, but it, I think it's, it's, it's not, it, it doesn't matter in the sense of it doesn't matter what sort of random trolls say, but it, it does matter sort of the uh, venom with which they say it. And I think that there's a certain line that shouldn't be crossed. And I think we should sort of agree to all be on the same side as far as citizens should have a right to peacefully protest. And if your position is, no, they don't, then I don't care about you or your opinion. Just because then we're talking about What if about they are fascism. protesting against <laughs> your ability to protest? What if they had a what if they had a protest where they just didn't were protesting the fact that you want to go protest? I would approve of their right to counter protest my <laughs> protest. Yes, I think that's a completely legitimate use of that. Um, if that form of counter protest involves making a phone call and having police do the counter protest with you with batons, then I'm not in favor of that. Mm. Uh, anyhow, we'll um, but you police know, make the best protests. They're, <laughs> they're really good at protesting. See, you know, here's the thing: you get your freedom of speech right if you are going to get off your butt and actually use your own lips. Mm. That I'm in favor of. <laughs> Hiring people to do that for you, uh, I'm not in favor of that. And I'm not saying you know, that should even be illegal necessarily. I'm just not in favor of mm. um, So we're going to keep working on uh, doing the uh, phone call as well, but I also wanted to just sort of prime out to uh, the second one, which is Myth or Science, uh, You Are What You Eat. Uh, that's Dr. Jennifer Gardy. That will be coming up uh, shortly. We're going to give uh, a couple more minutes attempt to uh, to get our friend from Peru on the line. Um, but uh, I was actually watching this uh, documentary. We'll be going to speak to Dr. Jennifer Gardy in just a moment. Uh, but talking about um, some of the sort of popular myths about things that uh, you hear about food. Um, definitely a little bit more of a, a fun look. Are you, are you going to tell me that uh, the carrots don't turn me orange? Because I've been uh, avoiding carrots oh, my they entire life. I watched like 85% of it. Orange. I didn't get all the way through. No, they don't cover that stuff. Okay. They cover things like um, uh, does blood type diets and things work? Uh, does caffeine improve your memory? Uh, does alcohol? This was my favorite one, and this one I did watch. Okay. So the doctor goes and gets her friends tipsy, mm-hmm. and then they do a scientific study about whether or not alcohol makes you think people are more attractive than they are. <laughs> and so they have interviews with her friends after having spent all night at a pub mm. saying hot or not photos. Nice. It was exceptionally funny. Uh, so what's the answer? Well, I can't tell you. We'll have to ask Dr. Gardy when she gets on the line there. <laughs> what is? So I think what we'll do here, because um, I'd really love to um, do our best to get somebody on the phone here. Well, why don't we, if we can maybe go early to a just short uh, music break here, we'll see what we can do uh, about the phone line, because I'm really looking forward to uh, to talking to those folks. If we can't get it sorted out, that's fine. We'll, we'll move on. We have lots of other stuff to talk about, but uh, let's just do that. So we'll be, uh, we're going to go to our music break here on The Green Majority. We'll be right back in just a minute. Yeah. 
Your life is changing in so many ways. You don't know who to trust anymore. There's a shadow running through your days, like a beggar going from door to door. And you were thinking maybe you'd get a maid, find a place nearby for her to stay, just someone to keep your house clean, fix your meals, and. And we are back. Victory is mine, Stefan. We got the phone lines working. Brenna, Ooh. Owen, I believe we have you on the line. Are you there? Yeah, hi there. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. It's always uh, it's always an experience when we have to do international calls here. Uh, I don't think we've ever had a clean one, so don't uh, don't worry about that at all. Uh, so just for uh, just for the sake of catch up here, so we know who we're talking to, Brenna, uh, I've been informed that you're a, a Queen's graduate of political science. Uh, uh-huh. You've also had your own international uh, affairs radio show at uh, CF uh, CFRC one hundred and nine uh, called Write a Reply, as well as being uh, having. Um, been the founding member of the International Youth Arctic Coalition uh, and having previously been to the COP19 in Warsaw, Poland uh, with the Students on Ice alumni delegation. We actually spoke to uh, a young gentleman from, that was a, a tripper on Students uh, oh, yeah. on Ice very recently as well. Um, and so I think we've, uh, we've connected to, to somebody who can hopefully answer a couple of very basic questions, which is just for sort of context about why we wanted to talk to you live while you're in Peru right now during COP20, we're about, uh, we're about a weekend, uh, is that there was sort of in the history of environmentalism, there was a, lo- a huge movement a few years ago, especially when I was doing my undergraduate, uh, about a lot of talk and a lot of pressure and a lot of excitement and fear and tension and all sorts of wild running emotions about the possibility of international agreements solving our climate problem. Uh, And environmentalists kind of, you know, as a very general blanket term, kind of in general kind of threw up their hands with the international 
community a little bit. Th- not not saying that there couldn't be good things done at that level, but sort of gave up their their holding their breath that yeah. the international community was going to come together and kind of tie this in a neat little package for us. So with that as the preamble, if you would please uh, tell us a little bit about what you're doing there, what has been going on, and, and just sort of your experience and your background with these international talks. Yeah, so um, this year I'm attending COP20 in Lima with the Canadian Youth Delegation. We're a group of seven women from six provinces, and we're here because we're committed to climate justice and holding Canadian decision-makers accountable for their actions. So I will be able to give you a little bit of an update of what's going on on the ground here, uh, but that's kind of the premise of why we're here, is uh, to pressure our elected respons- uh, representatives to take responsibility for Canada's emissions and to contribute to global climate change um, that our missions contribute to it. So um, in stakeholders, members of the Canadian delegation, including uh, Ambassador Dan McDougall, on the country's upcoming INDC submission. So INDCs, I'm sorry, there'll probably be some acronyms <laughs> I'm talking. Um, INDCs are Intended Nationally Determined Contributions to Emissions Reductions. They're due in March 2015. So we asked the government representatives about their INDC work plan and review process. We also asked them about the content of their proposal, which will basically be Canada's commitment for the next conference, COP21, that's in Paris, 2015. Um, and a colleague of ours from Climate Action Network Canada also asked whether the proposal um, uh, would uh, would include specific, uh, you know, what would it include? Would it include actions? Would it include um, what kind of activities? And the reply from our deputy chief negotiator was to look at what we've done in the past. So given Canada's track record on climate policy, this isn't promising news. Um, And also concerning about the INDCs is the lack of uh, information surrounding consultation and the review process. For example, domestically within Canada, who's being consulted and taken into account, if at all. So the INDCs are something that we're definitely keeping an eye on here. It's interesting, just this morning, um, there was an article released about Leona Glucock saying that Canada is still working on its commitments, and so we would we would hope you know that uh, there is actually like a work plan in place to submit the INDC. Um, and in pondering the INDC, I hope I'm not uh, being a little too long-winded here. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in pondering the INDC, I think we can also look to something called Canada's ADP proposal. It's the ad hoc working group on the Durban platform for advanced for enhanced action. It's a bit of a mouthful, um, but basically the mandate of the ADP is to develop a legally binding agreement before COP21 in Paris at the end of next year. Um, And the Canadian ADP proposal released just this past summer avoids mention of any of our most harmful extractive projects. So it doesn't mention the tar sands, it doesn't mention pipelines or fracking, and instead the proposal boasts that the Canadian government uh, will be pleased to elaborate on its experience with coal-fired regulations. Um, yes, we've cut coal emissions by 24%, but with tar sands expansion, our emissions are expected to surge by almost a third by 2020. So um, according to this 2014 report that was really quietly released by Employment Canada, and which I can't seem to find online anymore, uh, we also learned that oil and gas have surpassed transportation as Canada's largest source of greenhouse gases. So we're not too, uh, we're not too optimistic about the INDC based on that ADP proposal. Um, because, and you know, this means that ambitious targets and impl- implementation for Canada are simply impossible with the current government's approach at present. Um, and so hopefully our presence here at uh, the com- uh, Conference of Parties, COP20, uh, will show Canadian representatives here and also at home 
that Canadians are watching uh, and the Canadian youth are watching and organizing a Get Stoked agenda. Um, we've been blogging and pushing as many daily updates as possible back home, um, trying to provide an alternative on-the-ground source of information for people following the negotiations. Um, I hope I, maybe I should give you a chance to ask me anything. <laughs> no, 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 that's fine. Uh, I was very much looking um, for just that. Uh, but I did, have a, I did have a couple of quick questions here for you before we, uh, before we part. Uh, the, the first one would be, for, oh, well, first of all, I should say that if anyone else is interested in getting those daily updates, we'll have, a, we'll have a link to where you can add yourself to that list on today's show post. So uh, stay tuned for that after the show. Um, but one of the things there that I just sort of from my point of view, I mean, you, you are coming from a foundationally from a sort of uh, policy perspective. That's sort of your educational background, and, and this is an area that you study, um, and, and to a degree me as well. Um, and so I understood the uh, virtually everything that you were talking about there, but that's not your fault that it's not sort of super accessible. I mean, these are, when we're talking about international, you know, negotiations and stuff, this is not, you know, it wasn't your sort of inability to make it people-friendly. It's very not people-friendly. And so rather than asking you to sort of go back through some of that stuff, because, you know, some of the audience may or may not even be interested in the in the details of, you know, this agreement and that agreement, uh, what I more wanted to ask you about was just sort of about that that impact on the ability of the public to sort of have feel like they have even a stake in these conversations when the conversation itself is happening in this sort of like non-English um, sort of level. And, and what, do you, what impact do you think that has had on the ability of the public to, to participate and uh, feel like their representatives are sort of representing them and that, that they feel invested in this process at all when, when the process itself doesn't feel accessible or even uh, readable in some cases? Yeah, I... I I have to say that I completely agree. Like, this is my second comp, uh, COP conference, and, you know, I'm still building on what I learned last year. So last year, um, my eyes were open to, like, working group streams and all of these, um, the myriad of acronyms that uh, accompany the UNFCCC. Um, and so I do think that, yeah, it creates a disconnect for people who are wanting to understand climate justice and the inequities that are happening uh, at the international scale. Uh, and then that, in turn, prevents them from perhaps taking action at the domestic level because we do, the negotiators come to these conferences with an agenda from their national governments. And so if we had people who understood the process better, uh, they would be able to put pressure on their national governments to come with a more ambitious agenda to the conference. So um, I guess that's like a more hopeful kind of listeners can, can do that, can consider that, um, that, you know, the presence of civil society really does make a, a difference at these conferences. Um, and so that's kind of what we're trying to do is, is by civil society bringing alternative information, bringing like accessible information that's understandable uh, to people at home. But I certainly do think that it, it's also, you know, discouraging for, for uh, even civil society to come to uh, conferences. You know, does the process matter? Can anything be accomplished? But I do think that, yes, it absolutely can because it, it has to. This is the only option. Um, with the urgency of climate change, it's absolutely imperative that these negotiations accomplish what they're supposed to. So, um, you know, the presence of civil society uh, providing alternative information. But, yeah, I absolutely think that, uh, you know, it's kind of like the bravest uh, NGOs and observers that come to COP because um, it's, it's definitely not the most accessible of processes. And then that, in turn, as I said, discourages people from pressuring domestically. So... Uh 
Brenda, as, I mean, aside from going in and getting a similar uh, degree, where what what sort of easy access would you recommend, if there is any at all, um, to if people are sort of interested in this but they don't really have a big policy background and they haven't maybe been following this for years already, um, is there any any resources that you know of where where people can sort of get a sort of a Coles Notes version of how all this stuff works and what a lot of the acronyms mean and, and any of that stuff? Yeah, there are definitely, I don't have any, like, URLs uh, kind of on the top of my mind right now, but there are definitely, you know, there's like a, a Tumblr right now, I think, called Peru Awakening. It was going over, you know, <laughs> your, uh, <laughs> your um, kind of top ten uh, things to look out for. Um, but, uh, you know, I would obviously, like, maybe plug <laughs> our blog because, we are, you know, we're young, we're young folks, we're, uh, we're learning the process as well, and so, um, you know, and the blogs of other, other youth organizations who are here, they're going to be uh, explaining things in more accessible and understandable terms. Um, you know, we've been using some, some memes and, and GIFs even in our, in, our, uh, in our daily updates just to kind of get things more accessible for people, but, um, you know, I would say even just a quick Google search of top 10 things to look out for in Lima would, would probably bring up some alternative news sources because there's a ton of media here. Sure. And then, uh, of course, the last thing, as I said a, a moment ago, we'll, of course, have links to uh, add yourself to those daily updates, uh, which you're doing, which I found very, uh, very helpful. So I would recommend getting on that list if you are interested in finding out a little bit more about this process and getting up to the up to the date information. Uh, right before we let you go, Brenna, thank you so much for taking some time to uh, to join us today. Uh, also, by the way, feel free to go ahead and give a plug because I checked CFRC's uh, website and they're not currently uh, syndicating us. So go ahead oh, and send them an email well, and say that they should. <laughs> I'm partially kidding. Not really. <laughs> um, no, no, it's great. The very, <laughs> the very last thing before we let you go, of course. So, if you want to just sort of like outline, like what, of course, people when they're going in, and you know what, what we would probably all say, well, you know, if I was to ask you, what are you, what are you asking the Canadian government to do? What are you there, hopefully, to um, encourage slash pressure them to do? Uh, and we would, of course, probably have the same uh, off the cuff answer to that, which is take responsible action on climate change. Uh, but what do you, what do you think is is sort of like attainable? Is is, is there something that you think that with you know that it's something that that might happen, and if we can just make sure it's going to go through, do you expect any solid agreements or at least work that can, some tangible progress from this meeting? Is it feeling like this is going to happen so far? Um, well, one of the things that has kind of emerged as a focal point is uh, climate finance, and um, so Canada has actually contributed uh, pledged three hundred million dollars to the Green Climate Fund. And that's intended to be the primary mechanism for distributing climate finance post-Kyoto Accord. So that actually puts us 11th out of wealthy countries when contributions um, to the 100 billion climate finance goal are considered at a per capita level, which is not terrible. So the problem with finance, though, is that that's like a cheap payoff, particularly considering the 1.3 billion we spend each year in direct subsidies to the oil and gas sector. And it doesn't absolve us from our climate finance responsibilities because of the emissions that we're responsible for, particularly historically. Um, so, and we're also concerned, you know, that uh, it's $100 billion, uh, U.S. dollars each year to climate finance by 2020. So we're concerned that, that, that Canada has supported a swift proposal uh, that climate finance not be legally binding. And, of course, developing countries are concerned that if the, if the uh, cl Green Climate Fund is not legally binding, they'll be on the hook for, for paying for adaptation to climate change that they didn't cause. So, I mean, we did see Canada make this pledge, but we're a little bit worried that it's just like a drop in the bucket, kind of, we've contributed and we're absolving ourselves. Yeah. Um, 
So, yeah, I don't know how much time we have. I could, I could definitely <laughs> go on, but... <laughs> well, maybe, maybe, we can, uh, maybe we can have you back on when you, when you come back here to Canada. Uh, it would be our pleasure to, to speak to you again. Uh, just the, sort of the last thing I, I can't resist jabbing in there, too, is, of course, you know, $100 billion sounds like a lot of money to, to us, but that's like two stealth bombers. <laughs> Not yeah. even. It's like one and a half. Um, yeah, yeah, compared to the, the how much money the American uh, American government spends on the military each year. It's like, yeah, they so, probably spend more yeah. on pens at the State Department. Um, <laughs> anyhow, unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today. Brenda, thank you so much for taking some time out of your busy day there for to speak to us, and it would be our pleasure to speak to you again when you come back. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Okay. So we're going to move on here for just a moment. Uh, we, we used our first music break a little bit early, so uh, perhaps I can just uh, give our tech a, a moment to go ahead and get our second call sorted out, and we'll just uh, we'll have a little bit more uh, chat about that. Stefan, I know you as well also did quite a bit of uh, international policy work as mm-hmm. well. Did you have any sort of thoughts you wanted to pile in on, on, that, on what Brennan was saying there? Yeah. I, <clears throat> I think, well, I, I think the, 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 the thing that must be highlighted um, uh, is the fact that people actually now there's some actual faith again we're actually seeing a slight move back towards maybe maybe the international community will get its act together uh largely of course that comes from the chinese u.s deal uh and and that into which you can see the breakdown of what that means for canadians where was that uh, uh, you could find that's on our on our youtube channel oh, that's right it's on our YouTube yeah. right I, I I thought you would have figured that one out. You know, it's, yeah. it is our YouTube channel. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, I think no, I think that's I think that's that was that was a game changer, unquestionably. Yeah. You know that I think that reinvigorated entirely this discussion of of in fact maybe getting a, a, an international agreement. Like it wasn't even on the people's radar. Uh, you know, there was this slight you sort of heard the slight build up towards towards Paris, but once that got announced, people were like, oh man, maybe something actually might happen. Right, um, and it was sort of it was so coming out of that. It was, we were talking about optimism, sort of coming out of the People's Climate March, mm-hmm. and then sort of this. I think I think this level, wave of optimism has, has brought us back up to having maybe some faith that that Paris might actually be a uh, a place where a place where we'll actually see some real action. Yeah, and um, I mean, I sort of outlined my thoughts on on that too as well. But I think that's I think that's really the big thing here, which she was saying at the end there about um, finance, mm. um, because you know we can, we sort of complain about it and sometimes jokingly and sometimes not uh, about how sort of the only conversation that anybody at a at a sort of ubiquitous scale seems to take attention to is when people stop talking about dollars, mm-hmm. right? And when you're when you're talking about you know acres of forest or 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 the amount of this many parts per million of whatever in the atmosphere or poison in a river, people's eyes glaze over pretty quickly. But when we start talking about money, people are paying attention to that. And I think really where things might be coming to a head here a little bit is uh, the, the sort of combination of making, uh, creating a fund. Okay, it's just a check I got it right now. It's not, I don't have to do anything. Just, okay, fine. You know, I owe you 10 bucks a month or, you know, we're talking at a country scale. But, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it, I think it's a lot easier for people. It's, it's sort of almost like a penance. Like, you know, if, even if the country's <laughs> like, fine, you know, we don't really want to do anything about this and we don't really think it's serious or we don't really care. Mm-hmm. Um, but great. If I can write you a check to shut you up, then fine. Mm-hmm. And I'll, at this stage, I'll take it. Yeah, we'll take anything. Uh, and the other thing, too, I think that is putting pressure on that financial angle as well is the uh, divestment. Mm. as well, which has been a, a big sort of conversation here. Um, we've had a lot of oil companies coming out and saying, yes, 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 this climate change thing is real, and just, you know, we're not going to do anything about shh. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, really, at this point, I mean, I have to put a fine point on this. Anyone at this point who's denying that climate change is real and dangerous, mm. 
uh, send me your address and I will mail you a tinfoil hat because you're a conspiracy theorist. There is no other way around that uh, at this point. You have to be claiming a global, worldwide, massive conspiracy. It's really the only way out of that. However, I believe that I have uh, found out that we have our next guest on the phone. So I believe this is Dr. Jennifer Gardy. Are you there? Yes, I am. You believe correctly. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. We've been having some funny uh, phone tag trouble this morning. So thank you so much for being uh, diligent. I realize we're a few minutes behind on when we were supposed to talk to you. But thank you so much for taking some time to speak to us today. We're speaking oh, to you uh, about your upcoming uh, CBC doc, Myth or Science. You are what you eat. I had the uh, sincere pleasure of watching almost all of it until I realized <laughs> I was almost late to get to the, the radio station this morning uh, of this week preview. Uh, I enjoyed it thoroughly. Um, you're an excellent host. And, uh, and I, uh, I'm a huge science geek. Uh, anyone who's a long-time listener of the show will know that, that I have a, uh, in fact, to, for my street cred for science geekiness, I have a Carl Sagan quote tattooed on my arm. Mm. Uh, uh, so I'm yeah. not messing around. <laughs> uh, and I very much enjoyed your uh, sort of take on this, which is sort of, you know, popular myths uh, about uh, how just people's thoughts about your bodies. Uh, and there was a number of points here that I, that I really enjoyed that I just wanted to, to, to drop into here. But first, I would like to give you an opportunity to just sort of talk about your uh, background a little bit. And if you want to just sort of introduce yourself and talk about how you got involved with this uh, DOC project. Absolutely. Well, I am a scientist and a science communicator. That's sort of been my career path. Uh, I actually have a day job doing science, <laughs> which I'm doing right now over here in Vancouver. I work for the BC Center for Disease Control, where I do research on how we can use DNA and DNA sequencing as a tool to understand how infectious diseases spread. But I've always been a really passionate science communicator as well. I, you know, it goes back to when I was an undergrad in university. I used to work at the campus newspapers all the time, did some grad school at McGill and worked at the Montreal Gazette in the newsroom and just got uh, a real love for sharing stories and sharing information. So as I progressed through graduate school, you know, when I was doing my PhD, for example, I took on a lot of uh, science journalism gigs just to earn extra money, uh, you know, doing some freelance science writing here and there. And after a couple of years of that, I realized that if writing about science was X amount of fun, then talking about it on television was probably a hundred to a thousand X amount of fun. So just started asking around in my network uh, how to get involved with science television. And I guess about seven years ago now, uh, through just word of mouth, I found out that CBC was looking for some real authentic scientists to host a little eight-part kind of a nature of things uh, spin-off show that they were going to be putting together called Project X. So auditioned for that and got the job. And ever since then, I uh, just kept working. I usually keep uh, about 25% of my year free for science television and science documentary type things. So with CBC and the nature of things, I've been doing um, one episode a year up until recently. That's kind of kicked into a bit higher gear now, so I'm getting to do uh, two episodes each season. And I also do stuff for uh, Discovery Channel, their um, science news magazine show, Daily Planet. I step in and do some guest hosting there, usually a couple weeks out of every year. So kind of a neat, uh, a neat career. I get to do science. I get to talk about science. I get to share my love for science with people. I, I really enjoy it. Best of both worlds. 
So just before we get in, uh, there's, uh, there's a couple of things that I that I watched in the in the uh, sneak preview that I got to see that mm-hmm. I, that I really want to ask you about. But just before we, just before we get to that, before we move in, the one big thing for me all the time is we talk about um, sort of the the uh, you know when we're t- there, there's been an ongoing sort of quote unquote war on science as some people would uh, talk about yeah. it here in this country. And and I think really I don't, I don't I'm not going to ask you to to dive into that whole sector. I mean, unless you really want to, you're welcome to. But uh, <laughs> how long do you have? Just, uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but sort of more, just sort of with that sort of, you know, what, I, what we've talked about as being the undercurrent of how that's been able to happen was just that, you know, as, uh, you know, going to go and sort of plug my hero Carl Sagan again. I mean, that was his whole thing where he sort of basically did a very similar thing where he essentially dropped half of his professional professional work to go out and advocate for science literacy. Mm-hmm. And and he did that because he was aware of the fact that there was a shockingly low amount of science literacy. So yep. would you just sort of maybe talk about just sort of that, about your sort of thoughts about um, how accessible this information is and the need for people to go out and make, um, you know, en- enter- entertaining, but at the same point, informative and scientifically accurate programming as a way of getting people interested in, in this thing called science. Absolutely. I mean, that's one of the things that uh, when I talk to, uh, say, uh, undergraduate students or grad students or even some of my peers that are wanting to get more involved with science communication, one of the first things I tell them up front is that, you know, we as scientists have an obligation to do this. Science communication isn't something that you should choose to do. It's something that you should be doing. And the reason for that is, you know, exactly what you alluded to, informing the public. An informed public is an informed electorate who will go to the polls and choose a government that supports science. And really, I think it's all about letting the public know uh, just how much science and technology and research and discovery underpins everything in our lives. And I actually think we're at um, sort of a, a positive demographic turning point. So, you know, if you look back over the past several decades, uh, science was very much a thing that was done by scientists in labs behind closed doors. So you really needed people like, you know, Carl Sagan to get out there and share it with the public. But I think what's happened now with sort of the rise of the Internet and the accessibility of information is that our younger generations are increasingly science and technology savvy. They are able to seek out information. You know, if they see something really cool, kind of a neat scientific phenomenon, their first instinct isn't going to be like, oh, my God, that's amazing. It's going to be, oh, my God, that's amazing. I wonder how it works. But if you look at uh, the popularity of YouTube science channels, like ASAP science, like Veritasium, like SciShow, these things are getting hundreds of millions of views. So I think, maybe I'm being overly optimistic here, but I think we've got this demographic sweep of young folks who have an interest in information that's obviously going to include some scientific information, technological, cultural, it's really going to extend across all the domains, but I think we're going to have a more informed public moving forward. But in the meantime, you know, we still have generations of people that get their science information either from, you know, the newspaper or watching television, traditional media. So I still think there's a really big place for programs like the nature of things like Daily Planet and, you know, the, the success of the, the new reimagined cosmos with Neil deGrasse Tyson really speaks to that. So I'm just happy to be participating in that, and I hope to kind of set a good example for my colleagues as well and encourage more of them to try and get out in front of the media, explain what we do to people, explain why it's important, why it impacts their lives, and, and why they should vote for a different government that will perhaps restore some science funding to uh, 
to what our nation used to experience. Yeah, and I think, and and just to sort of to to put a, an underline on what you were just saying, we're not talking about sort of you know this party versus that party. What we're talking about is is science is the best way to make best policy by definition. Uh, exactly. And so a greater respect for science makes a more responsive public policy. This isn't about a particular type of policy or this policy or that policy. It's just that science should inform public policy, period. Yep, and be supported right through the whole spectrum. I mean, uh, there have been some changes to Canadian Institutes for Health Research at the moment based on a lot of the really amazing biomedical research, clinical research that happens in Canada. And now the budgets of those institutes are being halved, and uh, what's happening is that uh, researchers that want to apply for money from those institutes now have to find matching funds from industry. So mm-hmm. you've got this crazy push where um, basic science is being diluted uh, and the government is forcing scientists to basically partner with, you know, pharmaceutical companies and, you know, forestry companies. You have to have an industry partner to access this, you know, very significant pot of money now. So we really need a government that will not just respect science in terms of developing effective policies, but will also support that basic science uh, and allow it to be done in a sort of free and unencumbered and wonderfully sort of um, passionate atmosphere of discovery that, you know, science has always been characterized by and we're really in danger of losing now. Well, Dr. Gardy, I think we could easily have you on for an entire show to gush about <laughs> our mutual uh, love of science and, and how much it should be promoted. Yes. <laughs> uh, however, I don't want to let you uh, run out of time without uh, talking about your uh, documentary here. So let's it's, mm-hmm. let's dig into that just quickly before uh, before we have to go. Um, so we're talking about The Nature of Things. It's uh, the CBC doc, Myth or Science, You Are What You Eat. It's going to be on CBC TV Thursday, January the 8th at 8 p.m. Uh, and we'll have links to the show page and everything on our on our published blog for or for today's show. Uh, I really enjoyed what I did see. As I mentioned at the beginning, I, I got like about eighty-five percent of the way through it, so I didn't. I didn't see <laughs> the very end. <laughs> But as I was mentioning to my co-host uh, just a little bit earlier, when we were uh, having trouble with the other phone line with our other call, uh, was that I probably my favorite moment in recent memory uh, on television. Period was the scene with you testing whether or not alcohol affects people's attractiveness uh, on, <laughs> on your friends and yes. letting them do the interviews. That was awesome. <laughs> That was such a fun story to do. I think that's really the essence of these myth or science shows. This is the third one that we've made for the nature of things now. Uh, We've got two more that will be coming up uh, next season on totally different topics. But in every single one, we really want to take a look at, okay, what's the science behind these commonly held beliefs? So when we were getting together and thinking about what this episode might look like, we knew we wanted to go in the the food direction, the science behind food and drink. And we had a big short list of things, and it was presented to me at one of our productive meetings. And I said, you know what we have to add to this? We have to add the science of beer goggles. (laughs) There's been amazing research. Some of it is being awarded uh, the Ig Nobel Prize that gets handed out every year. I think it was last year was uh, one of those prizes went to somebody that's done a beer goggle study. But it's just one of those things everybody can relate to. You know, like, yeah, you know, you go into the bar and that person across the way is maybe a three, but after a pitcher of beer, all of a sudden they become a seven. And it was really surprising to learn that there's actual honest-to-God science behind that. It's not just sort of a loss of inhibition, but there's all these other interesting elements that come into play. And so what was your, aside from that one, because clearly it was going to be everybody's favorite, so beyond that, what was your <laughs> most, which one were you the, the most interested to do or the most surprised by the results, or, or which of the tests really stood out for you? 
you know which one I think was my favorite? I always really like the ones where I get to experiment on myself. And we usually do a couple of these each episode. I've done things like, you know, high-intensity interval training uh, or, you know, drinking to see if it makes me warmer. But in this particular episode, we had a look at the blood type diet myth, uh, the idea that uh, was advanced by uh, a doctor. And if you could see me, I'm using air quotes around the word doctor. <laughs> we'll envision the air quotes for you, yes. Exactly. It was one of these very, very popular kind of fad diet books that said um, you should be eating a particular diet according to your blood type. So how we played with this one was we did some blood work on me uh, at the beginning uh, before we actually started shooting the episode. And uh, all throughout our shoot, I ate the opposite diet to what I should have been eating for my blood type. And, you know, if there was any truth to this idea that, you know, eating like for your blood type is a thing, uh, by eating the opposite diet, I should have somehow, you know, screwed up my levels or indicators or derived no real benefit. Mm-hmm. And at the end of, uh, it ended up being actually about two months of eating, uh, I was perfectly happy to eat the diet because I got to eat the all vegetarian diet. At the end of that time, get a blood draw, look at all these markers, and across the board, I was healthier and I started in a good place and I went to an even better place and it was you know it was no surprise to me (laughs) I figured hey I'm eating vegetarian food uh this is going to be fantastic it's going to be a really nice uh demonstration of hey vegetables are good for you and I was just really surprised to see uh, how much of a difference it made and it was so much fun to kind of put the nail in the eat right for your blood type uh coffin it's just such a silly, bad diet. I think this segment really nicely illustrates that, you know, when you eat real food, healthy food, normal food, doesn't matter, you know, what particular diet you're following. As long as you're eating real, healthy, mostly plants, you'll, you'll get a good result. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Jennifer Gardy, Senior Scientist and Molecular Epidemiology, BC Center for Disease Control and uh, Assistant Professor, and I could spend five minutes reading all your accreditations. <laughs> uh, absolutely <laughs> wonderful to, to, to speak to you, and uh, and I can honestly say, because I actually watched it this morning, it was a very uh, entertaining show. I recommend people check it out again. That's The Nature of Things, CBC TV, Thursday, January the 8th at 8 p.m., and of course, you'll find a link to that as well on our show post today after the show. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Thank you. All right. Our pleasure. We'll uh, touch base again, of course, when some of those, uh, some of the next uh, series of that show comes out. But for now, we're going to go to our second and final music break before we come back and hear from Kevin Farmer. You're listening to The Green Majority here at CIUT 89.5 FM in Toronto. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. This is Darren Kayster, host of The Green Majority. The Green Majority is now so much more than just a radio show. You can learn more about what we're doing and find out how to support us at greenmajority.ca.
we are back. You're listening to The Green Majority here at CIUT 89.5 FM. A uh, lot of science policy somehow managed to make it fun today, Stefan, but that's, it was that's all, what we do it, Exactly. It was all Kevin's slow fade of the music right there. That's what made it fun. It was Ooh. the slow fade out as he talked over it. That was, yeah. that was the key, I think, to all of the fun today. That was that key. one moment. We that all knew one. it was coming, and so we had to fun it up to get to that moment, and then Kevin nailed it. Yeah, pretty much the entire show was building up to that fade-out. Yeah, <laughs> so uh, so you all better have heard it. If you did not hear it, go back to the website, re-listen to the show, and what really that, appreciate Stephen? it. Majority.ca there. Thank you. You really should remember the name of our website. I know. <laughs> Without further philandering, uh, Kevin Farmer. Philandering? <laughs> <laughs> We're having fun, Kevin. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, and I, I can't take too much credit for that uh, music track, by the way, because I played the wrong one. Um, uh, uh, I, I usually try to have, um, uh, well, not fun this week, but I usually pick the music with a, a bit of forethought. And that was the Doobie Brothers, and the track I meant to play was Taking It to the Streets uh, for a little bit of solidarity uh, with everyone who is taking it to the streets right now in the struggle, the ongoing struggle for civil liberties. Uh, in the states, uh, but uh, we got China Grove instead, so um, uh, maybe we, maybe we can go out on taking it to the streets. <laughs> uh, but uh, so don't give me too much credit there. It's only a mistake if you point out that it was a mistake, Kevin. I know I'm pathological that way. I always take credit for my mistakes, <laughs> e- e- even when uh, people might not have noticed them. Yeah, there's honesty to a fault, and then there's Kevin Farmer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So okay. So this week you wanted me to talk a little bit about. Um, the uh, Energy East uh, 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 business. Uh, so uh, the news in this case is that uh, uh, the premiers of Quebec and Ontario, Philippe Cuillard and Kathleen Wynne, they, uh, they announced recently uh, that they were going to impose uh, 17 conditions on approving the, the Energy East pipeline, pass- its passage through Quebec and Ontario. Uh, some of this is existing pipeline in Quebec, it, or sorry, in Ontario there is existing pipeline um, and it, at least in Quebec and maybe in parts of Ontario, I'm not 100% sure this calls for a new pipeline as well to uh, move tar sands bitumen to uh, refineries in uh, St. John, New Brunswick. So there were the, the premiers announced, uh, really, and made a lot of news because this was unexpected, that they were going to impose seven conditions. And one of these conditions was, uh, I've got this in quotes somewhere, but, uh, they, oh, yes, they, they, were, they were going to um, uh, look at the, the impacts to climate change. And it, in particular, uh, in Quebec's National Assembly, they passed a motion saying that the government was going to look at the global contribution to climate change from Energy East. All right. Then we get, uh, um, <laughs> I guess with all pipelines, any reversal of flow is always interesting. And we've got uh, a reversal of political will now on this, uh, <laughs> on this issue. Um, although yeah, I'm, I'm munging my, pi- my pipelines there. Uh, it's line nine that's being reversed. Um, or that's the proposal for nine line, line nine. Anyway, so now we've got this business that we're only, Kathleen Wynne has announced that we're only going, she is only going to consider the upstream impacts to climate change. Now, what this means is the, the, the emissions, so the pipeline at full production is intended to uh, uh, send uh, 1.1 million barrels <coughs> uh, uh, a day. Uh, so um, so what we're talking about is is, the emissions that are going to come from ramping up production in the tar sands to, to, to keep that pipeline full and pumping. Uh, now, just on the face of it, uh, the Pembina Institute has, has estimated that the, the increase in emissions from doing that 
will actually wipe out the gains uh, or the reductions in emissions that were made in Ontario by closing the coal-fired power plants. So, uh, so, and maybe I'm getting a little off topic here, or no, sorry, ahead of myself. This is totally on topic, but a little ahead of myself. Um, we've gone from now what we're talking about is instead of considering the emissions that are going to increase in the tar sands from keeping this pipeline full, we're only going to consider just local impacts. And I, I, I hope that sounds as absurd as it is. I was, I was grasping for analogies to think, you know, how absurd is this? <clears throat> and the only thing I could think of was really, you know, is we're soon and, I, and we're going to be dealing with jurisdictions that want to run pipelines from the Great Lakes, to, that want to draw water from the Great Lakes because everywhere on earth we're over-consuming water. And there's already proposals like this in the works to draw water from the Great Lakes and pump it to jurisdictions that do not border the Great Lakes. Uh, now, the Great Lakes are actually fossil water, at least most of them, most of the water in the lakes. It's there because the glaciers melted and filled those natural reservoirs. They, they only recharge at the same rate that everything, re- all fresh water sources recharge, and that's due to precipitation. So when you start drawing that down faster than the rate of recharge, you're exhausting that resource, just slowly maybe, but you're exhausting it. It's finite, non-renewable, and it's uh, appropriately a fossil, <laughs> a fossil resource in a sense. So I was thinking, you know, if we were to apply the same, so suppose someone were to build a water pipeline uh, and wanted to traverse Ontario to do it. And we, we would be concerned, rightly so, about drawing down this irreplaceable, finite natural resource. And this would be like saying this. And, and if we were to apply the same sort of sensibility to that project, we'd be saying, well, we are deeply concerned about the unsustainable uh, exploitation of this natural resource. And we know that building pipelines is very, very thirsty work. So in order to assess the, the impact, we're going to consider uh, – how much water the construction workers are going to drink while making this pipeline, and that that will be that will be our concern about drawing this down. And and, and I mean, on a good day, we talk about what what are being called the upstream impacts. We never talk about the downstream impacts, which which is you know what happens to all that carbon once we ship it, uh, it, it somewhere else. You know, right now we seem to be saying um, we're not concerned about the increase that in emissions that's going to happen in in Alberta. Maybe that's, you know, maybe those are someone else's emissions. Uh, but we, we never care about what happens to the carbon uh, when people burn the bitumen later. Uh, and it, <laughs> global warming doesn't care where a ton of carbon comes from. Uh, ocean acidification does not care where a ton of carbon comes from. This is the mother of all public goods issues. It's a transnational, transboundary problem. Uh, so if we, so one, we never talk about the downstream impacts. We seem to think again. Well, those are someone else's emissions. Uh, they, they, I guess they don't count. Um, but if we can't even talk about the upstream impacts now of emissions, I don't know what we're talking about at all. So, so, uh, so now Kathleen Wynne has said that um, this is essentially this is not the end of the discussion. Uh, that we're going to, you know, sort of, um, we're still going to discuss global impacts uh, to climate change uh, at some national level. Well, all right, but we can talk about them now. And 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 again, you know, a ton of carbon, a, a ton of carbon is a ton of carbon. It doesn't matter where it comes from or or who emits it. Uh, if we're not talking about if we're not talking about these things, we're simply not talking about taking action on climate change. Uh, and for you know a, a really good read. So anyway, uh, I'm I'm <clears throat> doing a little more shout outs for activism lately. If people want to express their opinion on this. Uh, 
there, I'm sure there's many. There's a lot of great NGOs in Canada that are are doing a lot of great work. Two that I can point out specifically today on this issue are Environmental Defense and the Council of Canadians, and both of them have a lot of information about Energy East, and um, both of them have uh, sort of clicktivism campaigns underway right now for people who can bring themselves to fill out a form. <laughs> and have it automatically emailed to to various uh, uh, government officials. You can do that through the Council of Canadians website or through the Environmental Defense website. Uh, and if you're feeling highly motivated, pick up the phone, write your own letter. I can guarantee you that has more impact. I can absolutely guarantee you that has more impact than, than you know any level of uh, collectivism. And for a really good read, uh, um, in a recent Globe and Mail, I don't know if it's a, what to call it, article, editorial op-ed, I'm not sure what the right word is, uh, Brian Crowley, who is the managing director of the McDonald laurier Institute, which claims to be an independent, nonpartisan public policy think tank in Ottawa. Uh, that's, that's what the article said. I'm actually unfamiliar with this organization. But he has an article in the Globe and Mail that is a really good read on particularly what might and might not be the ben- the economic benefits to Canada of the Energy East pipeline. And that's important because um, we don't have any parties in Canada that are anti-tar sands. We don't have any political parties in Canada that are anti-pipelines. They ha- they're trying to stake out variously, various slightly nuanced positions on which pipelines they are for and which pipelines they are against and, and, and how this uh, factors into climate change. It's in there somewhere. Um, but uh, but in particular, as you move as you move uh, towards sort of the NDP and Green end of the political spectrum, you get uh, uh, Mulcair and Elizabeth May, who are essentially for Energy East, making an economic argument for it and saying, "But we'll also do this, you know, in concert with a strong environment or environment policy or a strong strong policy regarding climate change." Insert snicker here. Yeah, well, it's like okay, sure, <laughs> you, know, you know, okay. Do do those at the same time? I don't think you can, but but they're saying that you know uh, there's there's an economic argument to be made, and it and they do make some very convincing cases. Anyone can find their arguments online. Uh, they're reasonable, but then um, this particular read from Brian Crowley in in the Globe and Mail uh, brings up some really interesting counterpoints to those arguments. So you know even you know even if we're not going to talk about climate change, we're going to say. We're going to stake out some weirdly nuanced position that uh, some pipelines are, you know, better than others and, and ignore the fact that they're all just delivery vehicles. They're all just big straws stuck in the tar sands and they just deliver carbon into the atmosphere and ocean eventually. That's the, you know, that's, that's what they do. This carbon is all destined for the environment. It's just a question of time. <laughs> so even, even, you know, uh, even, even if we're going to just, you know, say, even if we're just going to ignore that and say we're going to now try to deal with this only on some economic level, uh, there's, 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 this is just a good read. There's some really good sort of counterpoints to, to the arguments that are being made by the NDP and the Greens. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> and just two quick things here. We're, we're nearly out of time, but I appreciate you leaving me uh, two minutes here, Kevin, because there was a couple of funny things that, that popped up there. One uh, was that uh, one of the Facebook groups that I keep an eye on of many just sort of monitor to see the conversations that are going on there and just sort of to, to keep in, uh, to keep informed with various groups and this sort of thing. Uh, someone had put up the uh, the piece that originally inspired me to suggest that you speak about this today. Uh, said there was a huge long comment thread uh, on that page about that uh, and about 40 comments down right about where I started uh, coming into the conversation and, and sort of paying attention. Someone had said that... Uh, he had called uh, Premier Wynne's office uh, that morning 
and the re- uh, reception person had already, when he f- uh, upon finding out why he was calling the premier's office, had released a gigantic sigh, and that he assumed this meant that their office had already been flooded with calls. <laughs> well, and, and what's funny about that is is that people kept doing it, and after a while, they started being directed to sending an email or, or mailing. Yeah. At some point, they, the office was like, "We don't need." To, we <laughs> they basically gave in, and we're like, "We're not going to keep accepting these calls. Email us instead." You know, what's, what I do find really strangely uh, uh, hard to understand about this is that uh, Kathleen Wynne campaigned and won convincingly on a platform that was far and away more environmentally progressive than the NDP and the Greens, far and away more environmentally progressive. And I didn't detect at the time any great clamor from the Ontario electorate for tremendous strides to be made on, the, on environmental issues. So for her and her brain trust... To trot that platform out struck me as indicative of their sensibilities uh, on environmental issues. And it, what, it, it wasn't just that it was substantially more progressive than the Greens and the NDP. It was also uh, very forward thinking in a lot of cases. Like There weren't just more environmental policies. They were just better in a lot of cases. Uh, so, And then she, she changes the name of the uh, ministry to from the Ministry of the Environment to the Ministry of the Environment and Climate Change, uh, also sending a signal. She appointed someone with real experience and clout to that portfolio, which was never considered to be like a senior portfolio in the Ontario government. It wasn't like a prestige uh, portfolio, but she um, she appointed someone with, with, with experience and credibility. Again, another signal. She meets with Cuillard, Philippe Cuillard, the premier of, of uh, Quebec, and they, they impose these conditions. And then this, again, this just seems like a weird pipeline reversal, mm-hmm. <laughs> a reversal of flow. I can't think of any, I mean, I can think of various reasons, you know, I, I don't know. There's somewhere there's been a a conversation has taken place that I can't find any uh, um, indication of in, in news media. I don't know what this conversation was, uh, but this strikes me as a pretty substantial change of opinion, change of position, and I can't I, I can't think of one. I can't think of really many very good reasons why it has occurred, and I can't find any. Um, opinion pieces about why it might have occurred and it just it just really does it just strikes me as just very odd and there's got to be something behind it and i wish i could find i wish i could figure out what it was well we'll have to start doing our exit music but maybe i'll leave you with a one word possible theory explanation which is the word money that's it for Green Majority this week. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Of course, you can find all the links to all the, everything we talked about today. Go make up your own mind. Don't listen to us. GreenMajority.ca. Have a good Green Week, folks, and we'll see everybody real soon.